The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are now ready to start tonight's satsang, the discourse of tonight. I am in the course of elucidating from a yogic standpoint and also simply comparing from a moral and ethical standpoint some of the basic teachings of the Buddha. So therefore, integrating this in the Buddhist culture, civilization, where we are. I have commented already on the basic truth, the four noble truths with the three warnings of the Buddha and the vision of Swami Vivekananda of India concerning the Buddha, Buddha Gautama, whom he, whom he admired greatly. And I am now in the course of making a commentary on two short teachings, two short speeches given by the Buddha. The first speech given at Sarnat, I'm in the middle of it, towards the end of it, where Buddha was speaking to five ex-colleagues who then became his disciples. Buddha, together with uh, his ex-mates, were all practicing austerities. And because Buddha had not yet discovered his fundamental path to enlightenment, Everybody considered, erroneously, that the way to reach some peak experience was just to push yourself into some extreme asceticism, extreme mortifications to obtain success therefrom. They had the feeling that a human being had to perform a sort of a superhuman effort of renouncing everything so that one should deserve to reach some degree of knowledge and why not the supreme knowledge and immortality. And what Buddha discovered and what resonates with the teachings of Krishna about the same time even older in the Mahabharata and what many other teachers have discovered in various spiritual environments was that he and those other five people, together with many, many, many others in their generation, in their civilization, were actually ruled by this egoistic illusion that uh, they were relying mainly on the efforts. Until today, there exists a feeling, which persists even in Buddhism sometimes, that one has to enlighten himself or herself through their own personal effort. And therefore, it is all just a matter of self-discipline, of willpower, of practice, and all that, without understanding the fact that this transition from the finite to the infinite is not possible through a finite effort. At some point, we need the interference, we need the intercession of a factor which is transcendent. Although Buddha does not speak directly about a person of God, Buddha never really said forcefully, 
I swear to you that there is no God or something. And Buddhism itself speaks about superhuman entities, the psychology and the metaphysics of Buddhism, even of early Buddhism, speaks about superhuman beings, beings that have reached that level of evolution higher than human, as illustrated very beautifully by the Danish writer Gellerup in his book Kamanita the Pilgrim, where Kamanita reaching high on the way to Nirvana, he reaches to the point where he could become, for example, a god, a deity. He could become the equivalent of the sun god. In our solar system, there is a ruling entity, which is the ruling power in this sphere of the universe, which is called by the Hindus Surya Deva, the sun god. That Surya Deva once upon a time, pushing a little bit the envelope of the meanings, once upon a time, Suryadeva himself, because he is considered to be a male entity, Suryadeva himself was a sort of a human being. Like Suryadeva did not become Suryadeva out of the blue. Suryadeva became Suryadeva as a result of a very, very long and vast process of evolution, which also means you can become another Surya Deva, not on this star because it's taken already, but there are always novas and supernovas, stars are born and stars die in this universe at a scale of time which is colossal, of course, and therefore um, one could reach there. And what do people in India, what did they do in the Vedic tradition? What did they do in the Mayan and in the Inca tradition in South America? What did they do in the Egyptian tradition? What did they do in the Japanese tradition and others when they referred themselves to the sun, God, to the entity of the sun? They prayed to the sun. They sacrificed to the sun. And some of you may consider that very primitive, and at the same time, when you look at the history of humanity, you can see how present this has been and how much there is in this recognition of the sun as being an actual existence, not just a ball of hydrogen that explodes. That's exactly as I would try to reduce you to carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and hydrogen, but you are much more than that. And, of course, that much more can be denied scientifically. Like, scientifically, we cannot say that there is a spirit of the human being. But you and I, when we talk to each other, we use this spirit all the time. There is no scientific demonstration for it. But in the daily life, it manifests. Either it has been proven or not. So what I'm trying to say here is the same with the sun. The great mystics, they have seen in the presence of the sun and other celestial bodies as well, colossal presences higher than the human being. And if there is something higher than human, something which is like demigods, gods, high order deities, where does this ladder end? It extends almost infinitely, like you can always find something which is vaster and vaster and vaster. 
For example, it is one thing to speak in the Vedic tradition about the sun god, and it's another thing to speak in the tantric tradition about a goddess, a shakti, a female force that personifies time. Everybody who thinks a little bit will realize that time is something much higher than the sun itself, because the sun is subjected to time. The sun is born and dies, is limited in time. Time, if you consider time to be a deity, which they do in India and Tibet, Kali or Mahakala in Tibet, then time is a much higher deity than the sun. It's at a level of consciousness which affects all the galaxies, all the meta-galaxies, all the celestial bodies. It's something much, much bigger than a solar system and much, much bigger than a galaxy and much, much bigger than all the visible universe that we can perceive because it's something which is way more fundamental. In this way, I'm simply showing the fact that Buddha himself shows that this evolution continues and continues and continues. In Buddhism, there exists a very clear feeling that evolution can go at very, very high levels of consciousness. And of course, those are not yet Buddha. The paradoxical thing is that Buddha is claimed and it is acknowledged that not only Buddha, every enlightened being, any, every avatar, Ramakrishna and the Milarepa, if you want sort of examples, not to mention, of course, a Christ, they are always considered to be even above the deities, like even the deities are in awe as when it comes to Ramakrishna. So therefore, we are talking here about a ladder of evolution which goes to some levels which are inconceivably great, but then they have to go to something which is much, much greater than the greatest. And how can you get that just through selfish effort? I am going to do 12 hours of meditation every day, every day till the day of my death. Yeah, that amounts to a certain number of thousands or tens of thousands of hours of meditation, which you are going to do, which is very praiseworthy, but you cannot buy infinite eternity, eternal life. You cannot buy the infinity with 50,000 hours of meditation. Therefore, there is always a factor which goes beyond that. And Buddha, although he does not speak about a personal God that gives this transcendent thing, he nevertheless formulates it in a very different way. He does not personify it. He doesn't like the personification. He goes into a transpersonal thing. But actually, Buddha himself, he didn't say there are not extraordinary high powers. This theory of powers exists in the Western Hermetic tradition, which when it was taken, for example, in esoteric Christianity, this became the Gnostic Christianity, which was promoted later by the Bogomils of Bulgaria, by the Cathars and Albigensians of southern France, North Italy and North Spain. And these people in their Gnostic doctrines 
they used some of the statements made by Jesus himself in the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, to demonstrate, they, of course demonstration is a very strong word, but they thought they could demonstrate in their own limited environment that actually the previous God, which was worshipped by the Jews and by the mainstream Christian religion, this famous Jehovah, of whom the Jews were even afraid to pronounce his name, and who was a vengeful God, where you can read in the Jewish scriptures statements where prophets say, God has spoken as about you, Canaanite, or whatever. I have hated you since the womb of your mother. The question is, how can God say, I have hated you since the womb of your mother? Like, what kind of God are we talking about? Is that God? God, 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 or is that a God, a sort of very powerful entity? You can do meditation till you turn blue and you won't reach even to the hundredth part of the scope of that entity. So for you it looks like almighty, endless, extraordinary, omniscient, but it is not really. It's just big enough to make sure that in a hundred lifetimes you won't find the scope of it. So it's stronger than whatever you can conceive that doesn't make it infinite. The Gnostic Christianity, which was very puritanic, they had the metaphysics based on hermeticism and focused very much on Vishuddha and Ajna chakra, they had the feeling that while Jesus came from God, the church mistook it and they are worshipping not a God, they are worshipping a partial entity which is a vengeful, bloodthirsty, but very, very, very powerful entity, which they called in their Gnostic mysticism and theology, eons, like cosmic eons, like something which rules over a whole cosmic age of sorts. I'm trying to tell you these things to make you understand that as soon as you go far enough above the human condition, things become very difficult to define. Is... Kali, high enough or not? Because the Tantric tradition says, yes, if you worship Kali and become one with Kali, you are going to reach a level of consciousness which is high enough for you so that afterwards you can follow the path of enlightenment without any blockages. Therefore, Buddha himself, he did not contradict the fact that there exists a Surya Deva and that if you pray to Surya Deva, you can obtain some benefits that Surya Deva does know, even physically we know. Today, the scientists have said it since 50 years. There are sometimes in our solar system, solar explosion, because the sun is exactly, is in a perpetual nuclear explosion. And the sun is actually, if you look at it, the sun is like bubbling. The sun is a gigantic ball of hydrogen, which is exploding. It is in a thermonuclear explosion, only that that thermonuclear explosion has lasted for at least 10 billion years, and it would last probably for another 10 billion years. It's a mighty long explosion. That's why the sun is presently, in this moment, exploding. And an explosion has something chaotic in it. And that's why on the sun, we can see sometimes the famous sunspots and sun flares. The sun is exactly like a goulash boiling on a cauldron. It bubbles. 
because it explodes. It's, in, it, it's about to explode. And as it explodes, it bubbles. It's not regular and smooth. And as it explodes, sometimes from the sun, there gush drops of sun. There gush flares of hydrogen exploding. Some of these flares are so big that they can reach all the way to the Earth's orbit and further than the Earth. And the scientists have said it 50 years ago. If one such flare flares in the direction of the Earth, like if we happen to be in the direction of one of those, we are gone. We die in a fraction of a second. Like the sun is just going to burn us down instantaneously and humanity with all its knowledge of everything would not be able to resist just one flare from the sun if it happens to fit directly in the direction of the earth. The sun is almighty. The sun can destroy humanity in a second. Even the sun is so powerful that we humans are like ants compared to the scope of Surya Deva. And there are entities which are much bigger than Surya Deva, such as Kali, the goddess of infinite time. And therefore, Buddha didn't say that such forces do not exist. Actually, when they claim that Buddha said that there is no God, what Buddha actually said in the elegant discourses in the Dhammapada, not in what I'm reading to you here, his first discourse and the setting of the wheel of Dharma into motion, Buddha has actually said it in a funny way. He said, if the world was created by, by Ishvara, by God, by Lord God, Ishvara is the closest to the Christian concept of God, is God seen in Anahata Chakra. So Buddha said, if the world was created by Deva Ishvara or not, is completely irrelevant for you. Because your life is depending on much smaller things than that. You are trying to rack your brains if the world was created by Deva Ishvara or by Deva Sadashiva or by Deva Ardhanarishvara or it's like what difference does it make to you? He said in the end of the life what will matter is the deeds which you have done. That means everybody is, except Ramakrishna of course, is under the sway of the karma. What matters is your karma, your merit, your deeds. You are racking your mind with Deva Ishvara created the world and then the Catholics go and kill the Protestants and the Protestants go and kill the Catholics. What's more important? That you believed that Deva Ishvara created the world or the fact that you did heinous deeds of murder and violence and other similar things. So Buddha didn't really say there is no creator of this universe. In the cosmology of the Buddhism, which was illustrated very beautifully by Miss Helena Petrovna Blavatsky in the theory brought forth by the Theosophical House 120, 110 years ago, they took from the Buddhist metaphysics the fact that the universe is created by vortexes, like there is a central creator, and that central creator, which is at the level of Vishuddha Chakra, which creates Akasha, the ether, the omnipresent ether, creates in it the meta-galaxies and the galaxies. And then each galaxy presents like a vortex. It's a spiral, like the Milky Way, like our own galaxy. So there is a sort of a 
subordinated creator, like you have a company which is multinational, and then it has a branch in South America, a branch in Australia, a branch in Asia, and each one of those branches has a CEO that is the creator of the galaxy. So at the level of the heart chakra, we have a level of consciousness which corresponds to the center of our galaxy, and there is a colossal entity, an entity which has in its jurisdiction 150 million Surya Devas, suns. And that is the entity that rules the galaxy. That is the sun of the galaxy. Even today science realizes that there must be something really peculiar in the center of a galaxy. Because there the suns, the stars are so close to each other. Like now if you go outside and you have a clear sky, the stars seem to not be able to defeat the darkness. The night sky is kind of black. But imagine these stars being thousands and tens of thousands of times more of them. Then suddenly the sky becomes like star near star near star and the sky becomes bright. It's just a sky made of light. Even the night sky, it's not dark. It's just light upon light upon light. And therefore in the center of the galaxy, of every galaxy, there is a presence, there is a consciousness which is inconceivable, which is related to dark matter, which is related to uh, black holes, which is related to phenomena which are not fully understood in, my, in the modern human science. And then the galaxy creates 150 minions, which each one of them is a Surya Deva, is a sun. And each sun creates a planetary system around it. And sometimes the planets, when they are big and strong enough, they create their own satellites, like the Earth has the moon. So there is always a satellizing structure, like there is creation upon creation upon creation upon creation. So we can say we on Earth are created by the sun, but the sun is created by the central entity in the galaxy. But that entity is created by whoever created Akasha Tattva, the ether that impregnates the whole universe. And God knows where that chain of creation ends. Who is the creator of the creator of the creator of the creator? And that's why Buddha himself said that's not really important. You are clinging to things that you always try to have an emotional, personal connection with some God that you, you, you create anthropomorphically. You give it a human face and a human personality so that the God looks like you and the God becomes an old man with a big white beard and he is angry, he is jealous, he is vengeful, he is spiteful, he is this and he is that, corresponding exactly to the basic temperament of some of the people that created that image about God. In this way, what I'm trying to say here, this is one of the very shocking things which comes again and again in the Buddhist teachings, because Buddha has always gone, he has had a very fresh view. He simply said, this personifications and this thing that you think you are going to do some effort and please some great person who is floating above your head up there and this great person is going to snap their fingers and give you some grace and suddenly you are going to be enlightened. This is not really the way things are happening. And that's why last time 
I read this very provocative sentence from Buddha where he speaks about freeing yourself from the self, which is very, very provocative because in many other spiritualities, including some very classy spiritualities, like in this school, we value on top of everything else the Kashmirian Shaivism, the Kashmiri Shaivism. They speak about a sort of I-ness. And then this is comforting psychologically because people say, oh, I have an immortal self, which in India is called Atman, and Atman is eternal and indestructible. And therefore, if when I die, many of my memories will die, many of my kinks and psychological features will die, but eternally I'm going to continue because I am Atman, I am Brahman, and I'm going to continue. But very few people ask themselves if that is satisfactory psychologically. That's a very, very skewed understanding because when people imagine that there is a personal God and a personal survival, they are always trying to pamper their ego. They are trying to calm down their ego by simply saying, don't worry, there is a life after life and therefore uh, you are just going to uh, be some. Maybe you don't know exactly what or how, but don't worry, there is a permanence. Buddha admits permanence because Buddha talks about eternity. He says, you can be like me. I have reached nirvana. Wait a second, if you have reached nirvana, what are you? A cockroach, a stone, an atom? Like, aren't you still a human being? You are living in a human body right now when you are preaching. Therefore, a human being can be nirvana, can be in nirvana. Nirvana is somehow compatible. It dovetails in the human body. Therefore, a human body being at the same time apparently common sense, like Buddha was a man who walked, spoke, ate. No, he behaved like pretty much like a decent person and even a very wise person and a very wonderful person, a person of great compassion, of, ray, of great kindness. And this Buddha, therefore, you reach nirvana and you are the Buddha nature. What are you really? How much of you has survived? It is easy to say like Paul, the apostle of Christ, from now on it is not I, Paul, but Christ Jesus that lives in me. Yeah, but that Christ Jesus can be a very tough thing, can be a very transpersonal thing. That's why here we have a, a leap in understanding because Buddha himself has spoken, yes, of course there is eternity. That's, why I, that's what I recommend. There is eternal life. That's what nirvana is. I recommend that you should sit under a Bodhi tree like me and when you reach nirvana, you would have reached eternity. You would have reached freedom. You would have reached enlightenment. And at the same time, Buddha is not willing to let this go into the terms of superstition. A modern thinker that took the thinking of Buddha and pushed it in a very peculiar way forward was Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff had a very scary thing because Gurdjieff, and when you read the Larousse Encyclopedia or others that mention the name of Gurdjieff, you're going to see a very, very peculiar thing. Everybody considers Gurdjieff to be a spiritual teacher. But encyclopedias say George Ivanovich Gurdjieff 
materialistic philosopher and da 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 what makes encyclopedias which are not stupid after all designate Gurdjieff as a materialistic philosopher because in one of his books and Gurdjieff stated thousands of things in his books but it's funny that the encyclopedias focused on that particular one in one of his books Gurdjieff actually does state something like this I cannot say it word by word but I can paraphrase it very easily Gurdjieff says normal ignorant human beings do not have an immortal self which means if you die you die you disappear you disappear there is no survival because you don't have an immortal self but and here is the light in the end of the tunnel which of course encyclopedias seem to ignore but he said human beings can build an immortal self which is pure Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff was trying to be very original at all costs and he spoke a lot of nonsense and a lot of bullshit. How can a human being build an immortal self? How can you build something which is immortal when you are not immortal? You wouldn't know how to build something immortal. You don't have the power, the energy, the time, the infinity to build something immortal. Either it was there from the beginning, because if it is immortal, what, did you build it on the 7th of June? How can you build something immortal on the 7th of June? Because a simple law of philosophy says everything which has a beginning also has an end. So if your enlightenment has a beginning, then it will have an end. Therefore, either it was always eternal, or otherwise it's not eternal because it's not infinite. It has a beginning. If it has a beginning, it has a limit. Then we can speak about what was before the beginning, when your immortal self was not around to celebrate anything. Therefore, philosophically, if you think a little bit, you are going to see that Buddha cannot speak about eternity without speaking about the Buddha nature, a sort of existence which is eternal. But... Buddha wants to emphasize, and Gurdjieff walked in his footsteps and wanted to emphasize the same thing, that that something is so different, so totally different than the psychological I, than all this lower self, the ego, what we put so much value when we ask you, we cherish ourselves so much, this Buddha nature, this Atman, this Brahman is so different that we can't even conceive it. And psychologically it gives no comfort. Like, I will die and Jesus Christ, who is the Christ, will live. I die and Shiva lives because I become Shiva. I am Brahman. I, my little I, dies. But Brahman lives forever. What is this Brahman? What is this Shiva? People are having this Vadistanistic, romantic connection, sometimes Manipuristic, sometimes in very good cases, even a little bit of Anahatistic, like I love God with tears. But people, these are still chakras. These are still tattvas. 
these are still relatively low in the order of the universe that you are connecting to the divinity with your muladharistic security feelings, with your svadhisthanistic watery instinctual emotional feelings, with your manipuristic power-based personality-centered feelings, with your anahata selfless and kind and uh, loving feelings. These are very, very partial understandings of something which is much bigger. That is why Buddha has chosen to be a little bit cruel, to be a little bit tough. He said it's much better if you think that there is no self, because there is something eternal. But that something eternal is and isn't the same thing with what you call yourself. It is the same with yourself in the meaning that there exists a pure existence. There is an I-ness. You can say and feel, I am. Even though scientists tell you that this I am, it's an illusion because you are just having some electrochemical activity in the brain and you are just 300 billion cells and nothing more and you come from dust and you go to dust. Skeptical science does not exist except like Buddhism. That's why Buddhism is so popular in the modern world because some people think that it's more scientific because all the others are mystical religious spiritualities and they think Buddhism is not. That comes from a very, very superficial understanding of Buddhism. So what Buddha says, there is something eternal, but it's so different that it won't satisfy you emotionally. If I would say, this is what's going to disappear, and yes, there is something which survives, and that's the I-ness, you would get very scared. You would get very frustrated, because still death, would appear like a major type of annihilation, being confronted with emptiness, being confronted with a void, one would feel a great, great fear because most of the things which you cherish as being yours, they are not. They belong to the part which is Muladhara, Svadhisthana, Manipura, Anahata, Vishuddha, whatever else, they belong to this dreamy, collateral part of our self. So when we let go, we have to let go of a lot of garbage. When we let go, we have to let go of a lot of collateral thing that we wouldn't be willing to go. There is an I-ness. You can say I am, either scientists accept it or not, and so can Shiva. Shiva can say, aham, I am. And because of that, there is a continuity, there is a mysterious continuity between the individual and the universal. But that is not what people normally believe. Most of the mysticism are seeing the self like a butterfly which comes out of your heart and floats in the astral world where it kisses with wives and husbands and children and friends from 120 previous lives who happen to be in between two incarnations. And after you spend 300 years in the astral world in an extended spiritual family, according to your karma, you descend into a body again and you live on planet Earth. That indeed is the metaphysical model which is used and it's valid. But this metaphysical model hides in it 
a big trap in understanding. And Buddha, having committed himself to such abstract meditations, having developed this clarity on Ajna, he is not willing to make compromises and to give you a fairy tale. The truth is that sometimes a fairy tale catches very well. For example, Jesus does give a fairy tale. And it's not because Jesus is less knowledgeable than Buddha. It's because Jesus looks at the world and he says people don't need something as cold as Buddha's thing. People need something which is a bit more colorful and a little bit more warm so that they can link to it emotionally and they can be motivated and they can have aspiration. It's just different personalities presenting spirituality in different ways. Adi Shankaracharya presents Advaita in the form of Advaita Vedanta, and it's very abstract and very tough. And Abhinava Gupta, Tantric, presents Advaita under the form of Advaita Shaiva or Kashmiri Shaivism Trika, and that has in it personal implication and a lot of other things. There is a continuity, it's a more holistic way. Yes. There is a very abstract, cutting sharp as a knife, diamond-like, painful truth where all your illusions will be dissipated and all your Svadhisthana things will hurt a lot. But there is also a way of looking at things in a holistic way where you don't need to destroy everything because in the moment when you reach to the pure spirit, nature does not really disappear. Nature is as eternal as spirit. Shakti is as divine and as eternal as Shiva. They are both of them the two halves of reality. And that's why this paradigm, this symbol, this metaphor, which is the universe, it, consists, it continues to exist and it is meaningful through itself, while others, the Sankhya philosophy, Vedanta and classical yoga of Patanjali and so on, they prefer to define it as a total illusion. That's the key of this very big controversy that Buddha has chosen to present a sort of high chakra, sharp, abstract image of the evolution. And then in that image, he preferred to be like Gurdjieff. He preferred to say, it's better that you think in the beginning I am not eternal at all. I don't have an eternal self. And if you, I do meditation for 20 years, I might build one, which is, again, hilarious, ludicrous. It's not metaphysically sustainable, but it expresses the idea, don't lull yourself into some spiritual laziness. It was Osho Rajneesh in the 20th century who said, while metaphysically the idea of reincarnation is so very creative, at the same time it had the negative effect that it transformed Indians, people of India, in some of the most spiritually lazy people in the whole planet. Because many people say, oh, if I don't do it in this life, I'm going to do it in the next life. But the correct statement is, if I don't do it in this life, I'm going to blow myself into atoms and probably somebody else is going to do it 
centuries and centuries later, but emotionally and affectionately, that person is not going to be more related to me than I am related to Queen Cleopatra of Egypt or to, I don't know, to Zoroaster of the Zoroastrians or something. Like, there is the Tibetans, when you read Tibetan metaphysics, Buddhist, which goes on Ajna Chakra, they say very clearly, it's not really a soul that transmigrates. That's a comfortable view brought by some people because it comforts emotionally. And of course there is something, but it's very hard to describe. What continues is a line of causality. They said a human being that dies, it's like a micro-explosion that spread ripples on a pool, and those, pool, those ripples are bouncing off the walls of the pool, and then exactly like you create interference waves on the surface of the water, those are going to generate further patterns in the future. And the fact that a person died in the 13th century makes that another person is born in the 17th century. And we can say that this person in the 17th century is the reincarnation of this one in the 13th century. But it's a reincarnation is a very primitive term because it's just like karma which ripples and determines a certain bunch of DNA coming from two parents and being born under a certain astrological circumstance to assume a certain shape. And then suddenly you have a kid which is a genius like Mozart or which is handicapped like I don't know whom and so on. And, in this, and then you say karma. This is the reincarnation of somebody else. And it is because there is no effect without cause. Uh, every person, each and every one of you are, are now the effect of some causes. There is the law of cause and effect which is inevitable. You are the effect of some causes. And if you want to make it in a fairy tale, you can say, I am the reincarnation of somebody. But if you look at it in Ajna Chakra, it doesn't appear like a reincarnation. It appears just as effects. It appears just as ripples, not as a continuity. That's why uh, Buddha is very sharp and sometimes controversial when he says things in his, I'm back to his first sermon, when he says, how can anyone be free from the self? Because that's, the, that's his ideal. He says, you have to free yourself from the self. No, you don't have to free yourself from I-ness, from Aham. You don't have to free yourself from I am Brahman, from I am Shiva. You have to free yourself from the self, which means the lower self. You do not free yourself from nirvana. You do not free yourself from immortality. But you free yourself from something which creates the illusion of a self to which we are very, very attached. It's very important to understand because Buddha cuts in a painful way through illusion when he says this, and again, he does not mean the ex non-existence of infinity or eternity. So how can one then, he says, go away from the self, like liberate oneself by leading a wretched life? 
if he does not succeed in quenching the fires of lust, because he says the mortifications are vain, profitless, painful, and therefore they will not manage to destroy this basic attachment. That's what he was preaching to these monks. He said, brothers, you are on the wrong path. You are still torturing yourselves. I have discovered the shortcut. Now I realize. And then he continues this part I did not read. All mortification is vain so long as the self remains. That is what we tell in the lectures on tapasya, on tapas, here in Agama, in the very first level. This is the biggest risk of tapas, that people do tapas, and the tapas develops your manipura, and it develops a strong ego, and even if you are very refined in your ego, the ego is still somewhere there as a pernicious beast that refuses to die, and then automatically, then even the tapas just becomes vain. It becomes, it creates power, and power associated with ego is just a recipe for disaster, not for fulfillment. So all mortification is vain so long as self remains, so long as self continues to lust after worldly or heavenly pleasures. Doesn't all the religion give us this? Encouraging you to stay a little bit more into a lower self because they have a good pedagogic. They say you are not going to get fully to nirvana. Paramahamsa Yogananda makes it beautifully explained and this will be at least one third of what we explain broadly when we do our metaphysical workshop whenever it is in July, if I remember correctly that Paramahamsa Yogananda explains not everybody attains a supreme enlightenment in the beginning. Enlightenment in the meaning of yoga and metaphysics means that people destroy their physical karma and they don't need to incarnate on the planet Earth or on any physical world. But then when they are free from the physical world, it doesn't mean they have gone completely into Brahman. They still exist in the astral world in a very high astral world which Yogananda calls Hiranya Loka, a plane of Ajna Chakra, a sub-astral world which corresponds to Ajna Chakra, where colossally high entities, saints, great yogis live there, bodhisattvas and very high beings live there. It's a world of light and spirituality, and from there you have spiritual teachers of the second grade, which take you from there and then they teach you an even more abstract spirituality which takes you to the third level and only from the third level then finally there is a sort of letting go completely. Therefore, um, normal religiousness is always describing that you are going to get 72 virgins and have sex with them till you turn blue in paradise that you are going to go to a paradise where angels are playing beautiful uh, music and you are going to be lulled into some eternal life with pleasure and sunshine and shadow and bliss and whatever gives you pleasure and all that. But Buddha is again cutting. He says, how can it is vain as long as the self remains and one continues to desire worldly 
or heavenly pleasure. The great yogis have said that I want to be one with the divine consciousness, even if it means giving up enlightenment, even if it means giving up knowledge, omniscience, even if it means giving up bliss and ecstasy, even if it means giving up omnipotency, I want just to be one. It doesn't matter because these are all illusions, these are all carrots placed in front of one's nose that if you will make some valiant efforts and get yourself to the kingdom of heaven or to whatever, you are going to pleasures which are pretty much eternal. Buddha says, come on, cut the nonsense. That's not good enough. That's not nirvana yet. That's not the full transcendence. The full transcendence is more scary. It's more radical. And many people will say, but Swami, then I must say, I am not prepared to throw myself head forward into a black hole and be annihilated. Good. Then it means you want to follow a less radical path. You want to follow a more friendly path, which is still keeping some of yours vadistanistic, manipuristic, anahatistic, or whatever illusions alive. You want to sleep with your dreams a little bit more, not just cut everything in one go, be radical, fanatic, totally. Buddha has followed the path in his life since he left from home so radically and fanatically, and his practice and everything, where he went very much into Ajna Chakra, and he developed this kind of Tibetan style, Buddhist style, and others, and Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya, and Patanjali a little bit, this sort of spirituality which is uncompromising, cruel, radical, total, and whoever can, let them do this. And who doesn't, well, uh, we don't have, there is no midpoint. But for example, a Jesus, a Rumi, other great, a Ramakrishna, if you want, they realize that we are in Kali Yuga. They realize that the human beings are the way they are. And if you put in front of them a carrot, which is a bridge too far, then the human beings get discouraged and they say, eh, bugger, I can't do that. You know, it's like, who can do that nowadays? And then one gives up. In many religions, you see, that even when the religious ideals are mild, and people say, hey, who can do that? I'm not a saint. And then by saying this, people give themselves the license to be vicious, violent, jealous, angry, greedy, steal, do all sorts of immoral things because they say, uh, who can refrain? I'm not an angel. I'm not a saint. That, by that excuse, nobody should do any moral effort ever because everybody can hide behind the statement, I'm not a saint. That's coming when you are placing the carrot too high and too far away from the human being and the human being says, I can't do that. That's why remember that although some religions seem to be a bit more compromising and a little bit more childish, a bit more Walt Disney-like than a Disneyland kind, than Buddha's statements, nevertheless they are based on a very high wisdom of the people who emitted that truth, who simply said the truth has to be communicated in a friendly way, which produces a movement in the heart in a friendly way, 
which says people, yes, I want that. I can do that in this lifetime. I can reach it. Then the teacher has reached the goal because the teacher has presented a, a reasonable carrot in front of the aspirant and the aspirant will make some effort to go there and thus the educational process is fulfilled. But he, says Buddha further on in this great discourse, but he in whom the self has become extinct is free from lust or desire. He will desire neither worldly nor heavenly pleasures and the satisfaction of his natural wants will not defile him. He says two things. One, the person will be essentially without anything. That's the great, great teaching which is given in the Indian parable about Bhava Samadhi or Unmilana Samadhi, the Sahaja Samadhi, in which uh, you have a comparison between a hardcore ascetic and a person that has surpassed this. I've said this parable at least 10 times and probably I'm going to say it at least 100 times in the years that come because it's one of the cornerstones of Indian spirituality going from conventional spirituality to tantric spirituality. That two people sleep under a tree and in the night the oracle, a spirit, appears to them and says, without you knowing, this tree was an altar in the old days and there is an oracle and therefore now you are direct connection with the gods and the gods will give you an answer to whatever question you ask. So ask a question. And the ascetic immediately says, how long time until I reach nirvana? And the answer comes, six lifetimes. And he is devastated. Like six lifetimes. You know, it's like, try to think. Many of you now are in yoga. It is possible that some of you have taken a very, very big decision, which is something to think about very seriously. There are, there may be in this room, a few people who have taken the decision to go into yoga and spirituality 110%. Like for you, this is what you want to do in this lifetime. Everything else is collateral. Family, children, business, survival, financial security, whatever, health, whatever, you don't care about it. The only thing about which you care is the fulfillment of the yogic ideals. And those of you who are in this situation, you often think about the time before you discovered yoga, when you're a teenager, when you're a child. Some of you discovered yoga at even at later age. And you are thinking, my God, what a life I was leading at that time. And I didn't know anything about these things. And now this thing is my soul and my life. And at that time I was so ignorant. I didn't even know about this. And therefore I didn't even feel guilty that I didn't know this thing. So what will happen? Six lifetimes. It means six times again, I will have to play this Russian roulette. I will have to go and be a child and a teenager and this, and I'm going to be totally stupid and ignorant. And I just have to take it on credit that something, karma, grace, something is going to remind me of this. And at a pretty good age, I'm going to remember and I'm going to resume the thread of my practice and keep on like six lifetimes plus this incredible insecurity which is involved, which is implicit in the whole thing. So he started lamenting, you know, he started saying, my God, you know, it's like six more, I, like I've done plenty of effort in this life and the path is so long, takes another six lifetimes, five and a half or whatever. 
it's still it's it's terrible it's terrible news no, like 10 years would have been bearable but six lifetimes no it's terrible news and then the other guy who was a bohemian vagabond no he asks uh, what about me like he didn't really have any serious question he could have said no how can i get lots of money to feel really comfortable or something that would have been more pragmatic for him. But because the first guy asked about enlightenment and he had nothing to lose, he says, what about me? And the oracle says, there will be for you as many lifetimes as leaves in this tree, which according to the parable meant thousands of lives because there were thousands of leaves in that tree. At which this non-spiritual guy, he giggles with joy and he says, great. Thousands of lifetimes for me to be around and enjoy myself. And the voice of the oracle says, actually, this was just a test to make the whole point clear because you are enlightened as we speak. That's exactly what Buddha says here, that he will desire neither worldly nor heavenly pleasures. Like this guy didn't desire nirvana. He was already at a point of wisdom where even nirvana had become irrelevant. He was not desiring paranormal powers. He was not desiring to get there in six lifetimes or in ten years. Or He couldn't care less. Whatever the oracle told him, he said, it's great. We live like Leibniz said. There is a great, great wisdom in the philosophy of Leibniz who says we live in the most perfect world there is. Like everything is just as it's supposed to be. What? And you are having tsunamis and wars and yes, still great philosophers have said this is the best world there is. This is perfect in a way. When you see it from the standpoint of the crown chakra, it's just exactly what is supposed to be because it's Shiva and Shakti and you cannot create something more perfect than Shiva and Shakti. All the pains and the woes are pains and woes of the ego. They are pains and woes of the desires. They are pains and woes of the frustration of a limited consciousness. From the standpoint of Shiva and Shakti, it's just Shiva and Shakti who make love to each other and everything is a perfect world. There's nothing else in this which needs to be. That's how you see it from the pinnacle of the spiritual life and then Buddha expresses this and he says you will desire neither worldly nor heavenly pleasures like beyond this and therefore that's why this this young man in our story he was a typical example of this he was not desiring even enlightenment and he was happy with everything and the satisfaction of his natural wants will not defile him like you want to eat eat you want to sleep sleep you are having some sexual urge fulfill it that will not defile if you are in that state of consciousness attention if you are in that state of consciousness it makes no difference that's why a great zen master rinzai dogen i forgot who was asked what is what does your enlightenment consist of and he said when i'm hungry i eat and when i'm tired I go to sleep and he said I know the fools will find this hilarious 
but the wise will understand what I mean. This is the very essence. He demonstrated through this that he was like the young man who was told, you still have 6,000 lifetimes. Nirvana or not nirvana, what does it matter? Dead or alive, aren't you still in the divine consciousness? Here or there, like Rumi says, sometimes found, sometimes lost, are you not always in the divine consciousness? It is like Abhinavagupta says, if the Supreme Self is eternal and perfect and everything is Shiva, then how could exist in this universe something which is not Shiva and which is painful and imperfect? It's all an illusion. It's a fairy tale because when you are in Muladhara, when you are in Svadhisthana, when you are in Manipura, when you are in Anahata, you need a, a bit of drama. You need a bit of a reward carrot in front of you. You need to go to the kingdom of heaven and be rewarded with eternal life and with all sorts of pleasures. And of course, as long as you follow this pattern, you will get it. I'm not saying you'll not get it. Even advanced forms of meditation, they are called in India, Ananda. Indian yogis speak all the time about a level of accomplishment which yields states of ecstasy like there exists ecstasy and you can experience ecstasy especially through meditation sometimes the sexual tantra brings it right under your nose and it shows you you know you can open the door of ecstasy even when it's not fully ecstasy it's just an intense pleasure but that intense pleasure is like a channel which can take you to ecstasy if you do it right so all these carrots are there, you know, they are alluring and saying, sure, you are afraid of pain and you want pleasure. And then guess what? Yoga, Tantra are the providers of eternal pleasure. Not because it's accurate, not because it's absolutely right, but because you are longing for that and that's your carrot. That's a sort of a white lie which you are being told exactly as Vigyana Bhairava Tantra the most fundamental text of meditation perhaps of the whole India, which is not a small thing to say, says whatever the scriptures and the yogis say about Bhairava Shiva, the Supreme Shiva Consciousness, is like little candies that a mother gives to her baby to make him take a bitter medicine. Like the child won't take a bitter medicine. And the mom gives him chocolate or something and says if you take the medicine, Look, here is a bit of chocolate and you are going to get one more but after you take the medicine. Like, this is cheating. And the child has to be cheated because he doesn't have enough self-discipline to take a reasonable decision. Although, he has to take the medicine because the medicine is for his own good. And then the mom does a little immorality. The mom is lying to the kid, cheating, manipulating the kid for his own good, not because she is a selfish bitch and she wants to derive a per. Actually, it's difficult for her, but she does it anyway. It's the same with spirituality sometimes. You are given the carrot which fits with your level of evolution. Don't forget the earth is a loka, is a planet, which is based on Svadhisthana Chakra. We are a planet covered by water and we are beings made of water. We are a Svadhisthana world, and that's why spirituality has to be given on Svadhisthana. 
as myths, as legends, as imagination, as pleasure, as wishful thinking. And those are the religions which catch with the masses, which catch with the majority. Because the majority cannot go into Buddha's metaphysical statements. The majority wants to hear that you do good, you find good, you give uh, love, you receive love, you are reading a moral and righteous life, you are going to go to paradise, and things like that. There needs always to be a carrot. Do not despise that carrot. Although in yoga, sometimes in discourses like that, we tear the veil of illusion and show you the more cruel, the more cut, cutting edge truth, Nevertheless, remember that even you, when you are not in this state of consciousness and in this clarity, sometimes you need to lull yourself into some promises. But Swami, are you promising to me that if I do this, then I will get that? Everybody wants a carrot. Everybody wants a promise. There are very few people who would just be perfect for the heck of it. Just, you know, like you don't get anything. There is no carrot in the end of the tunnel. There is only the ultimate truth, the absolute, the pure existence, the infinity, the eternity. And that in itself is scary, is completely an infinite thing which blows our limitations. It simply destroys everything. That's why Buddha says if you reach to that level, not only you give up all the carrots and this, but the satisfaction of his natural wants will not defile him. In the Zen tradition of Japan, the Zen martial arts tradition of Japan, they extended this, they extended the principle of karma yoga through the samurai culture, because the Japanese culture was so focused on war making, on martial arts, on this, that they had to integrate it. I have known Western teachers who wrinkle their nose at the Japanese spirituality because it sometimes involved like the samurai. To samurai, samurai means to serve. And Bushido is the way of karma yoga to reach to Buddha through surrender. To be a samurai perfectly was a really, 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 really difficult thing because you had to give everything up. You were... The, the fallen samurai, they were called ronin. They were vagabonds. This was the biggest offense, to be a ronin, because it meant you are egocentric and you are just serving yourself. The real, and they were not considered samurai, and they were not following the bushido. The bushido was the one who gave away his ego by surrendering. You surrender to your feudal lord, and your feudal lord has the right to tell you three times per day, Slit your belly now. Why? Just because you looked in a skewed way at me and I have a bad digestion today. It doesn't matter why. Kill yourself now. Your feudal lord could do that any hour of the day. Could ask you to kill your wife, children, family, everybody, everything. It was a complete surrender of the ego. The people who have been actually subjected to such tests along the centuries Imagine the pain through which they had to go to be able to let go, especially when you know that your daimyo, your feudal lord, is an asshole, a womanizer, an alcoholic, a something, and now he tells you, kill yourself. Today, 
by sunset. And you say, who, are, who the heck are you to tell me this? You are the biggest asshole of us all. You can't say that. That's why to be samurai was not at all easy, because it meant a complete surrender. It meant a discipline in which in the moment when you swore allegiance to a lord, you basically forfeited your life. Your life was gone. You didn't belong to yourself anymore. You're like a slave. Samuraiship was a form of slavery in a way. Since you allowed somebody to have power of death and life upon you arbitrarily, it was like this. So in Japan, where the spirit was so strong on Manipura, they integrated martial arts. And that's why in the samurai environment there is harakiri, there is seppuku harakiri, there is go, your master tells you, take out your sword and go and cut 20 people. And you do it and you don't do it for yourself because then the, your feudal lord can say, and by the way, the 21st is yourself, now cut yourself. And you do it. Like there is no ego, there is no pleasure, there is no fun in it. It's sort of a completely detached karma yoga into it. And I have seen people coming from the Christian environment and others who are wrinkling their nose and they said, that's not really a clean spirituality. It's not a clean spirituality if you are not Japanese and if you are not Manipuristic. If you are Manipuristic and Japanese, for them it worked. And in this Japanese Manipuristic martial arts spirituality, there is a famous story, again from the Zen environment, which shows exactly how these people were working. Exactly what Buddha says, his natural ones will not defile him. The master leaves the disciple, who is a pretty enlightened disciple already, chopping wood. The typical scene where they chop wood for their little tea ceremony or whatever they do. So the disciple is chopping wood and the master goes, but he knows that there is something there because in the area there is a gang of thieves like which was producing a lot of trouble. And the master on purpose comes there, chooses the most exposed place without saying it, and then he tells to the disciple, please chop this pile of wood, I'll be back. As the disciple chops the pile of wood, the gang bursts in. And the disciple, being a super trained Zen martial artist, basically kicks the hell out of all of them, and they all get dead. Two, two hours later, the master comes back. The disciple is quietly chopping the last pieces of wood in the pile, but around him there are about five people cut to death by the sword dead by the sword, bleeding in the grass, and dead. And the master, to verify the perception of the pupil, says, what the heck is this? What happened here? And the disciple says, I was chopping wood, then I don't know exactly what happened, and then I was chopping wood again. Which means the disciple said, I didn't kill them. Kali killed them. Nature, mother nature killed them. It's exactly like somebody wants to come to you and comes with force and imagine that somebody runs with 120 kilometers an hour and smashes themselves into a wall. And then they crack their skull and they die. You cannot really blame the wall. Like whoever wants to smash themselves into a wall will die. Whoever wants to fight with a super trained Zen martial artist will die. It's as simple as that. Those robbers, those thieves, they had to learn a lesson. 
And that lesson was, if you slap a tiger on the face, the tiger will turn back and bite your head off. So any intelligent person would not slap a tiger over the face because it's way stronger and faster than you are and you can't put up with it. Exactly in the same way, this young man behaved like he was the hand of God, like he had nothing personal in it. This is how far they took it in the Zen Buddhism as extension of it. It was like a satisfaction of the natural ones. You know, it's like it's raining. It's like it's sunshine. It's like, you know, these ascetics, they are blaming themselves because they are eating, because they are sleeping. Buddha says, once you have reached the supreme understanding, the fulfillment, the satisfaction of the natural ones will not defile anything. A little bit more to fulfill all this. And he says, let him eat and drink according to the needs of the body, which is again a very loose thing. I remember one of our advanced teachers who went to do a meditation retreat in uh, Suanmok here on the mainland, where there is a big Buddhist monastery that organizes Vipassana retreats every month, 10-day retreats. And uh, Going to this place, this teacher, she found out that the founder of this monastery and the founder of these retreats and of this tradition is a very, very famous Buddhist monk of Thailand who has passed away many years ago, who lived in the 20th century, and who was considered almost unanimously in Thailand to have been an enlightened monk and who was called Buddha Dasa. And Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who lived there, Whenever you see his photos, because he lived in the 20th century and there are photos of him, he looks very fat. He's a very fat guy. And actually, when you go around in the Buddhist environment, you know that most of the Buddhist monks, they are not allowed to eat any solid food after 12 o'clock noon. And generally, they eat with pretty much moderation. And when you look at them, 99% or 90% of the Buddhist monks in Thailand in the Theravada tradition, they are skinny, wiry, very thin, and you can see that they are on a very low-protein diet and on a very meager diet in general. But Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was enlightened according to the, to the masses, that means there is a historical confirmation of this man, you know, vox populi, vox dei sort of thing, the voice of people is the voice of the gods, that's a Latin proverb, and Ajahn Buddha Dasa was considered enlightened. And then many people would say, how the heck was he not eating after 12 o'clock at noon when he was obese, clearly, like he was fat, fat. And he suffered from diabetes. He was so fat that he suffered from type 2 diabetes. And even when you ask, and this person even asked the meditation teacher from Swan Mok in one of the Dharmic questions, they asked this irreverent question, you know, it's like, how do you say that Ajahn Buddha Dasa was enlightened when he was actually obese, overweight, and definitely not observing the elementary food discipline of the Buddhist monks or something like this? And the teacher started laughing because everybody knows the story. And he said, yeah, yeah, he was stuffing his face. He was doing also, he was breaking all the rules and so on, but he was enlightened indeed. Like when you say that let him eat and drink according to the needs of the body. Yeah, but if you are disturbed hormonally, 
then the needs of the body are a very subjective and relative thing and they can be a something which is very unhealthy and very imbalanced. Buddha covers even that. He says that's not the point. The point is that one should have that clear awareness. And Ajahn Buddha Dasa had that awareness. So for him, that he was obese or skinny or something, didn't matter. Ajahn Buddha Dasa was not doing any discipline anymore because he had reached to a place where he didn't need it. And he gives then a comparison, which is classical in the Indian spirituality, which, where he says, water surrounds the lotuses, but does not wet its petals, which is the typical. In India, they use this comparison with a lotus, and they use another similar one with a swan, that a swan crosses a stream of water, and when it gets out on the other side, it's not wet because its plumage, its feathers, are greasy and water cannot stick to its plumage. And therefore, the swan is dry almost instantaneously when it comes out of the river to the other side. That is the parable which simply says, Buddha tells them, I have understood, I have realized the state of consciousness where all these efforts which you do have become useless. And he says, I can be in the middle of the world of samsara, but samsara doesn't wet me. It doesn't touch me. As long as I am on these four noble truths, on this eightfold path, as he called it, it's like it doesn't matter. You should be much more relaxed and natural. And he continues by saying, we are close to the end of this exceptional first teaching of Buddha, on the other hand, sensuality of all kinds is enervating. The sensual man is a slave of his passions and pleasure-seeking is degrading and vulgar. Of course, when we say sensuality, we are tempted to think mostly about the sexual aspect of it, but actually the exegetes of Buddhism, as well as in classical yoga and in others, they make it very clearly that you can eat an ice cream with sensuality. You can sleep in your silk bed sheets with sensuality. Sensuality is a much bigger headline which simply shows a sensuous approach to all the five senses. You are reveling and being tickled on all the five senses like all the time you need to smell delicious things and you say Ah, so nice. And if you don't have it, then you have no endorphins in your brain and you start suffering. You need taste and other things. You need visual, pleasure, pleasurable things. Like you wouldn't want to live in a ghetto or in a slum where you would see ugly, horrible things all day long. Uh, so even visually, we can be uh, perturbed by that. We, you don't, you want to feel on your touch, either it's sex or any other touch thing from your clothes, from whatever, how clean your skin is or whatever it is. And last but not least, of course, the sound, what you hear. Many people are dependent on this, especially many people who are yin are very dependent. They have to be exhilarated constantly to be pleased. I want to hear classical music all the time. 
I want to have beautiful paintings in front of me. I want to live in a house which is made by a good architect and decorated in good taste. I want to have comfortable clothes and when it's too hot I have the air conditioner to run. Like whatever I do, I wouldn't subject myself to one rough thing, to one challenging thing. But that automatically means that when one rough thing is coming, I don't know if I can cope with it anymore because I lost my training. I became spoiled. That's why George Oshava, the founder of Macrobiotics, he said in the 15th century when half of your children died of plague and smallpox by the age of 18, and when there were wars all the time and violence and misery and there was no hygiene and so on, people had to develop an incredible resistance. Like everybody was very tough. That you couldn't pierce their, everybody had a psychological shield on them and they could resist. Today, people are like glasshouse plants. They have lost their natural resistance to the stimuli of the world. And then, as I said some other time, even in television series, they didn't do it until 20 years ago when the, especially in North America, this hysteria has become bigger than in other places. And they put now, as soon as a movie is a little bit tougher, they say uh, this movie contains disturbing images. Viewer discretion, whoever invented this was a very weird person. Viewer discretion is advised. Like we don't want any old lady to have a heart attack or to throw her cat off the window or something like this. We don't want anything amiss to happen, you know, because you are going to watch 24 or some other violent, uh, thrilling series, and you can't take it anymore. Sometimes when there is a tough scene, turn your head, close your eyes, because you can't see it. This is a person with no skin. Is a person who is skinless. You poke the finger directly in your tissues and lymph system, you know, like you have no more barriers. You cannot defend yourself from the environment, and it's not really the good thing. So, coming back to the story, Buddha calls sensuality any hunger for pleasure of senses. It's not only about sexual sensuality. It's about you can drink a hot chocolate in a sensual way. There are people who, if they don't get their gustatory sensuality, they die. They see something delicious, they start drooling. I've seen people, I've known people, especially some very Yinzvadistanistic people, who they yearned for a dish of food and it was, because it smelled so good and it was not given to them and they went home and they got sick badly, like illness, almost about to die, like somebody had given them the evil eye because of the frustration that they didn't get something delicious when they yearned for it. And thus, this is a sort of a wild, out-of-control sensuousness manifested in terms of taste, and it exists in terms of all the senses. And Buddha, coming from Vishuddha Ajna with these things, he says, this pleasure-seeking is degrading and vulgar. A very, very stern statement, especially when you are involved in tantric yoga 
and you are weaving, uh, you are waving the carrot of pleasure under your nose all the time. That means many of you are very enchanted by the pleasure that you have discovered, for example, with sexual tantra. The question is, are you doing it for enlightenment? Like, did you forget why you started doing this? Or actually you have become unknowingly just an addicted person who is just pleasure-seeking, and then you are in a degrading and vulgar course. You may tell to yourself that you are on the path to enlightenment, but meanwhile you, should, you might have lost your compass. And when your teacher comes and says, now let's see you doing a celibacy of six months, or now start doing it in this way, or make sure you are not losing your ojas while you do this, because that's the test of your resistance, that you are not doing compromises. Or your teacher is saying, don't mix up your possessiveness and jealousy and inferior feelings with this, because you are not doing this to just become a satisfied bourgeois citizen. You are doing this for nirvana. And then when your teacher or mother, Kali, gives you that lesson, then you start suffering and then you discover that meanwhile you had become a pleasure-seeking, vulgar, degrading person instead of staying on the pure path where incidentally there are forms of spirituality such as the tantric spirituality where you play with the fire. Like at least our brethren, the Buddhist monks in the Theravada tradition, they stay away from pleasure if they are honest. Many are cheating. But those who are really honest and hardcore, they stay away from pleasure as from fire. They are afraid from any pleasure because it would consist a temptation. Buddha himself says that mortification is a misunderstanding because they think that by the very merit that they stay away from it, they're going to get something. They're not going to get something through that. That's not the cornerstone. But on the other hand, for us in a tantric school, we can reverse his statement and ask this question of conscience. Like, how is the path of pleasure practiced in such a way that it doesn't become slavery of the passions, sensual overindulgence, and just a pleasure-seeking philosophy, a pleasure-seeking psychology. That is very important. That's why it is important to understand that even in a place like in sexual tantra, there are some hardcore things. There are some things which are non-negotiable so that precisely the human being doesn't start cheating and going into indulgence under the excuse that, oh, this is the path which my teacher taught to me. It has to be a complete path. But to satisfy the necessities of life, continues Buddha, is not evil. This is the paradox. There is this in Mahabharata, when this guy is asking to Parashurama for the secret of the ultimate weapon, a sort of nuclear weapon of the time. And uh, Parashurama says, I will, no, I can't give it to you unless you are a humble, simple man because I have the thing that you are an aristocrat and you want it for inflation of your ego, which is of course true. 
and then Parashurama gives him the secret, and then he says, I want to sleep, give me your thigh, like sitting like this, make your thigh as a pillow, you know, the obedience of the disciple to the guru. My guru wants to rest, and he wants to make my leg his pillow. Of course, they would oblige. The gurus, 3,000 years, the disciples, 3,000 years ago, would be very, very willing to serve their guru. And um, he does this, and then there is a worm coming and biting him, a sort of a centipede or something bites him really bad. And he doesn't even jolt. He uses all his willpower of a trained military man to kind of not disturb the guru because he is ashamed to kind of have a jolt and wake up the guru. But of course, the guru had planned this thing to happen, like he had kind of prayed, visualized that this circumstance will happen because he wanted to make a point very clear. And then the guru, just five minutes later, wakes up because now the point was there. He didn't need to sleep, really. And he wakes up, and when he looks, there is blood all over. And he says, what's this blood? And he says, well, a centipede, a worm came and bit me. And he said, you didn't scream, you didn't move. Oh, he said, I didn't want to disturb you. At which the guru says, my goodness, you cheated me. You are an aristocrat. You are one of these vain, stupid, arrogant people. Like, because it's like, to fulfill the necessities of life is not evil. He said any modest, intelligent person would have screamed and not let the worm drill a hole in its thigh, in his thigh. Like that's the natural. You've lost your common sense because you have too much sense of honor. Because of this honor, you are reacting like an artificial person. Every If you would have been a peasant, as you say you were, you wouldn't have cared about saving your honor in this way. That's why Buddha says sometimes people lose common sense. He says, in my spirituality, satisfying the necessities of life is not evil. And he continues, he says, to keep the body in good health is a duty. For otherwise we shall not be able to trim the lamp of wisdom and keep our mind strong and clear. So many imprecations with Hatha Yoga and everything are here. Because to keep the body in good health is a duty. Until when? Until 60, until 80, until 120, until 250 years old. Until when? Like this is a very funny statement because it basically says, then if you know some methods like you can do Paschimottanasana one hour and a half every day like the guru of Dhirenda Brahmachari, and that will keep you healthy and lucid and everything until a very old age, why shouldn't you do that? Like knowing and not acting, says a proverb, is a great act of cowardice. Like if you know, the next step is to act on what you know, not to be a coward and to stay away from it. And that's why he says to keep the body in good health is a duty. Actually, the Christian mystics who practiced a lot of, of, of uh, austerities, they say the same thing. They say if you do too much fasting or something and in the process you destroy your body, you are a criminal and you are going to incur divine punishment. Because you did not create your life, you did not create your body, and then what right do you have to start destroying it, even under the excuse that you do it for a higher spiritual accomplishment? It's not allowed. It is a spiritual crime to destroy your body under the excuse that you do it for the sake of awakening the spirit. It's not. That's not a healthy attitude.
So Buddha says it very clear. Even Buddha himself had a physician. The Thai say that there was a Thai physician called whatever, I always forget his name, a famous, the doctor of the Thai medicine, the arch doctor, who actually Buddha at some point was constipated and he gave him some purgative to loosen his bowels. Like even Buddha was using the services of a doctor. You, by using this philosophy, the physician of the Dalai Lama told him, if you don't eat some meat from time to time, you have a body constitution which is going to dry up and you are going to lose many years of your life. And Dalai Lama today, approximately two times per week, he eats meat. He's not 100% vegetarian, although he's Dalai Lama. Because he obeyed to the advice of the doctor. Buddha says that you have to keep your body in good health is a duty, and you don't know better than your doctor, right? Especially when it's a traditional Tibetan, like a real educated doctor, because today we have some qualms with the medical institution, because there is a lot of pseudo-medicine going on as well. But we are talking about the real thing. If the real thing is there, then you have a moral duty to sustain, because he says, otherwise we shall not be able to trim the lamp of wisdom and keep our mind strong and clear. Here there are two meanings. One of them is, everybody needs time. Even imagine that those, there are some of you who are, let's say, in yoga, quite lazy. Like, if we put together what you managed to do in one week, you manage to come to two yoga classes per week, in which the practice is about two hours and a half in each yoga class, about five hours of practice per week, plus you are coming sometimes to some occasional event, such as the spring equinox meditation or something. So, with a bit of indulgence, there are some of you who can pack up to seven hours of practice per week which means about one hour of practice per day. That's not much, but still it's something. It's much more than nothing. And therefore, what does a person who does half an hour of spiritual practice per day, what do they actually need? They need only one thing, time. If you could live 500 years, even with 30 minutes of yoga per day, you would reach enlightenment. Because you'd simply have a hell of a long time to reach there. So one of the problems in the human habitat is the fact that life is short. And because life is short, we need to make efforts. Or if we can simply say, I do it in the next life. I do two steps this life, two steps next life. Then of course you don't know if there is a next life because you don't have the full proof of that. And that's why here we're having a totally different discussion. But one of the things which every spiritual teacher knows is this. You have to give yourself time. Because two things are going to happen if you give yourself time. Either you are going to lose faith, have doubts, lose aspiration, lose what the Buddhists call bodhicitta, which means aspiration, sperm, the thought of enlightenment. And then you are going to simply drop your spiritual practice and start doing, I don't know, stock exchange speculations or something, you know, because it produces more satisfaction in your life than Laya Yoga meditation. Or 
you are going to somehow manage to keep your bodhicitta or something, and then you are going to keep on doing some practice. Busy as you are, worried, stressed out by all the things of life, you are going to do some practice. If you have enough time, if your life would be long enough, even that little drop-by-drop practice would eventually yield enlightenment. That's why Buddha says you need to give yourself time because time is your chance to reach enlightenment unless you give up your spiritual effort. You don't lie to yourself, you know. Ah, I'm not a spiritual practitioner anymore. I'm a sort of a spiritual sympathizer. I have some sympathy for some spiritual ideas. I'm not really practicing. You cannot lie to yourself on such essential issue. Or you simply say, no, I do spiritual practice. Then the only thing which I need is time. And this, therefore, it's a moral duty and an essential duty that you give yourself that time. If you smoke and you kill yourself 20 years earlier, and then you complain, I died without having reached enlightenment. You died without having reached enlightenment because you hated yourself and you killed yourself by smoking. You shortened your life on purpose because your subconscious mind knows exactly what's going to happen. And don't come and say, oh, I didn't expect. Bullshit. Of course you expected. Everybody who lives a chaotic, self-damaging lifestyle knows somewhere. If you put them under hypnosis and search their mind, they know perfectly clearly what they are doing to themselves. It's all self-deceit. So we shall not be able to trim the lamp of wisdom and keep our mind strong and clear. There is the second implication here, which was brilliantly put out by the Greeks in the famous proverb. Funny, the proverb is in Latin, but it illustrates a Greek teaching in the famous proverb which says, Men sana in corpore sano. A healthy mind exists in a healthy body. If the mind is not healthy, the body will not be healthy. If the body is not healthy, the mind will not be healthy. Therefore, how to keep your mind strong and clear when you are damaged physically? Beyond a certain limit. This is very important to remember. Like Buddha simply says uh, a constructive spirituality comes together. A strong mind, a clear mind, is reflected by strength and clarity in your health, in your physical condition, which is very provocative. And now it ends. This is the last statement, finally, of this discourse. And he, con- he concludes by saying, this is the middle path, O bhikshus, that keeps aloof from both extremes. It's a thing which goes straight to the target. The blessed one, spoke so kindly to his disciples, they were not his disciples yet, but then they decided to be when they heard such wisdom. He spoke so kindly to his disciples to be, pitying them for their errors and pointing out the uselessness of their endeavors and the ice of the ill will that chilled their hearts because they were all very angry at Buddha, thinking that he had become a glutton and betrayed the path so they are really despising him. And then they say the ice of ill will that chilled their hearts melted away under the gentle warmth of the master's persuasion. So this was 
the very first discourse of Buddha when his enlightenment was fresh. In the moment when he was freshly there, that was what he had to say about what the path is. There is great wisdom, there is great softness, there is great balance in it. Later, Buddha developed a few other theories. I want to hold at least one or two satsangs still on the Buddha teachings because there are a few wonderful teachings about the kindliness, the compassion, the way Buddha sees it, which is different from the Christian aspect of love in so many ways, so as to see some of the correspondences which we have with yoga and with other spiritualities. But I guess it is enough for tonight. Let us stop here. With this we have finished. Namaste to all of you. And I'll meet you in the future satsangs. Again, another one or two satsangs still talking about the essential teachings of the Buddha. Because soon after this, Buddha kept the second speech, which is also fundamental in the Buddhist speech, short, and which is called setting into motion the wheel of Dharma. It's like when Buddha decided to be a teacher and to leave on the face of the earth an actual teaching that will last and serve the future generations. And that is also a very brilliant, very enlightened message. But enough for tonight. With this we have finished. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.